0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Well, our show is really interesting today. We're going to be talking a lot about the differences and similarities between young adults and older adults when it comes to information privacy and attitudes and their policy, especially with regard to things like social networking and i am so thrilled we are welcoming back a good friend a great guest who we have we have to have him on every single year because he's always doing very exciting things and we're going to be talking with chris j Hoofnigel. and i'm going to tell you if you haven't heard about him before you haven't heard him before you've got to go back on our website and look at the archived interviews because he's always got something great to say but if you haven't i'm going to tell you a little bit about him Chris Hufnagel is Senior Staff Attorney to the Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic at Berkeley. And he's a Senior Fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. His focus, as we've talked about many times, is consumer privacy law. From 2006 to, rather, from 2000 to 2006, he was Senior Counsel to the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And that goes as the acronym EPIC and the director of the organization's West Coast office. At Epic, he concentrated on financial services privacy, telemarketing regulation, and consumer profiling. He was also a non-residential fellow with the Stanford University's Center for Internet and Society for the 2005 academic year. Chris is a nationally recognized expert in information privacy law, and he has testified many times before Congress and the California Senate and Assembly numerous times on Social Security privacy and credit transactions and many other things. Chris is also a regular contributor to print, radio, and television articles. Uh, and who, uh, Chris has provided commentary for over a 1000 news stories in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, National Public Radio, ABC News and many other major media outlets. You can find more you can find out a lot more about him at law.berkeley.edu/samuelson clinic and he also does a blog too. So I want to just thank you so much for joining us from San Francisco area.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well,
1: you are just a great friend, and we're just always thrilled to have you back on. Chris, you do so many great things, and all the great work that you're doing as the director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technologies Information Privacy Programs, you're doing studies, and these studies are fascinating. In fact, uh, one of your most recent ones, I, I really took interest in. You just, you recently did a study called How Different Are Young Adults from Old Adults When It Comes to Information, Privacy, Attitudes, and Policies. So what methods did you use to do this?
0: This study was a random digit dial telephone, a telephonic survey of internet using Americans. And um, what's key, key here is that we still do telephonic surveys Um, because they're considered more reliable, Um, our polling company calls both landline and cell phones. So unlike a lot of the other studies in this field, uh, we actually get people on the phone, uh, whereas many of the other studies you'll see um, are actually uh, focused on people who are responding to web ads. So those studies are actually looking at people who who are online already, and who are um, actually answering an advertisement before they um, um, participate in the survey.
1: Well, also, when you talk to someone on the phone, you can hear their intonation. You can kind of, if you don't understand something, you can ask a clarifying question. So it seems to me that it's far more personal and far more effective to do it by phone.
0: Well, we think is there's sampling problems and in using Internet-drawn um, um, subjects. Uh Basically, I mean, your attitudes towards online advertising are probably deeply affected by the fact that you're willing to click on an online advertisement in order to participate in a survey, um, whereas our phone calls are random uh, random digit dialed. Right. So, so,
1: yeah, I can understand. So th- those people already are feeling okay about g- answering an ad. Yeah. So, yeah. And,
0: you know, we do both landline and uh, cell phones, and so we've done a lot tried to do a lot of outreach to people who use different types of communication devices.
1: So, Chris, what were you expecting to find in this study?
0: Well, this study is looking at some assumptions in the online advertising field. Um, As you know, Mari, uh, online advertisers have long argued that people want tailored advertising. And the other type of assumption that one frequently hears is that young people don't care about privacy anymore. So we set out to look at these questions and try to test what individuals' attitudes were uh towards these two different issues. And I didn't know what we'd find. I mean uh the uh things could change, people could want tailored advertising. We didn't really know what people were going to say.
1: Yeah. So this seems to be a really hotly contested issue, both, you know, in the private sector as well as in Congress talking about this right now. And there seems to be countless avenues popping up that serve the purpose of self-promotion. You know, we've got Twitter, we got Facebook, MySpace, YouTube, where where people can garner attentions for publicizing their private dubious behavior. But obviously there are dangers that accompany this exposure of private behavior, and so what do you make of the claim that young people simply don't care as much about privacy as older people? I mean, you, you got to study that, and what did you find? What do you think about that?
0: Well, just um, from the beginning, you know one of the points we are trying to make is that the um, a popular attitude that young people don't care about privacy is, is often driven by anecdotes, really popular anecdotes about um, certain young people who have uh, behaved outrageously online. Um, and you know you can look at those individual incidents, and some people will generalize and say, well, you know what? All people must feel this way. Um, and we were trying to say, wait a minute. You can't kind of reason from anecdotes. Um, and there is a way to get data on these problems. Um, now, uh, we looked mainly at privacy attitudes, however. Not at privacy, not as much as, as as privacy behaviors. And one of the things we found is that young people um, agreed substantially with older um, individuals about being concerned on privacy issues, and they wanted uh, privacy rights that were very similar to older people.
1: And when we talk about young people, what what age group are we talking about here?
0: Eighteen to twenty-four. Okay, we didn't talk to people younger than 18 because studying children implicates different ethical duties um, and creates other um uh, problems um there are other social science researchers who have looked at younger populations uh the Pew Internet uh, uh project for instance has looked at teenagers as young as 13
1: right right Now, there was one psychological study that found that youths were more inclined toward risky behavior and risky decision-making than adults. And that study happened to say that peer influence plays an important role in explaining that risky behavior during adolescence. Now, so this inclination to take risks, you know, amidst that atmosphere of group thinking surely can be applicable socially, you know, socially online But doesn't this mean young adults don't care about privacy? Isn't that what people are saying? In your study, you stress that you wanted to understand what dimensions of privacy young people care about. Why don't you explain what you mean by the dimensions of privacy?
0: Well, we asked a series of questions uh, about what young people normatively believed uh, should be the rules for social networking, and we asked them questions about their privacy knowledge, the, the whether or not they knew um, uh, what privacy laws protected them or not. Um, and finally, we asked them whether or not they wanted substantive rights and personal information. So these were the different axes along which we, we looked at the population. Um, we did not um, do we did not um, study, for instance, do you post pictures of yourself or um, do you engage in this type of behavior or that type of behavior? on social networking services in part because the Pew Internet um, project has done a series of studies in that area.
1: Right. So what did you learn about these young people? What kind of precautions, if any, are they taking to protect their privacy online? And, and how does that compare with what precautions older adults take?
0: Well, one of the first questions we asked was whether um, you have ever refused to give information to a business or company because you thought it was really uh, uh, not necessary or was too personal. And we found that 88% of the total uh, sample said that they had refused to give personal information uh, to a business. And when you look at the 18 to 24 group, um, uh, the number drops down to 82%. Um, But our our kind of point here is that, that while on some of these measures, a lower number of young people uh, um, uh, objected to sharing information, um, it's still far over than 50%. And it's always in the direction of the older adults. We didn't find any examples where young people said something that that was really different than older adults, except in the area of credit reporting, where we found that 18- to 24-year-olds were much less likely to ask for their credit report. Um, And they were much more likely to say that they had never um, gone out and checked their credit report than people older than themselves.
1: Well, that makes sense because usually from 18 to 24, I mean, maybe they're buying a car, maybe they're having their parents help them, Uh, they're more unlikely to buy a house at that age, so they're not going to be looking at big purchases. You know, maybe if they're looking for student loans, I think they're becoming more aware of it. I know even my daughter and her friends are becoming more aware of it, but that makes a lot of sense to me that they're really not that aware of credit reports and how it affects them, even though it could affect them even getting a job. So uh, that that's pretty interesting. I also notice in this chart here, how interesting it was when you asked uh, whether they refused to provide information. From the 18 to 24-year-olds, 82% said that they would. um, Yes, they have. And it was only 85% of people uh, 65 and over, whereas the 55 to 64-year-olds, it was 92%. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know if as you're older, you're you're just more relaxed about it, or I wonder what that was all about that. That, to me, was an interesting um, percentage difference. did you Did you find anything about that 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 came to your mind?
0: Yeah, we haven't written about it in this report. I think this is going to be the topic of a follow-up paper. We found that many of the attitudes fell on kind of a bell curve with people the very youngest um, um, uh, cohort and the very oldest cohort being the most ignorant, for instance, of privacy laws. Whereas people in the middle, people um, in the ages of 35 uh, to, to 54 or so, those groups tended to know the most about the privacy rules and tended to have objected um, to information collection and etc. So the, the privacy savvy, uh, for some reason, seems to be in the middle ages. Um, and w- when you get to the oldest Americans, um, you see some of the the biggest misconceptions of privacy rules and um, often uh, not as much uh, uh, exercising as right, of rights as younger Americans.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, I kind of find that interesting, too, even when people call me when they're victims. It's the youngest and the oldest seem the most challenged in having any sense of what to do. So it, that that falls in the same line. So, what were the significant differences between the privacy practices, though, of the younger adults versus the older adults? Did you, was there real significance?
0: Generally, um, there were not big differences. The the, the the area where we saw the biggest differences was in, in credit in checking uh, credit reports. Um, th- that was an area where we thought um, it, it would make sense that younger people wouldn't be. Looking as much, and I'm hoping that that changes over time. Uh, but we found a pretty high number of um, of young Americans uh, said that um, they had never checked their credit report, um, and, which is problematic. And um, now that credit reports are free, um, and we have uh, you know AnnualCreditReport.com, I'm hoping that more young people will check their credit reports periodically.
1: You know, I think one of the big problems with young people is that they don't get this kind of training about privacy protection and uh, information privacy and credit reports. They really don't get a class on that in school. And if we have older adults that don't have the time to train them or they're not really that up on it, where are they going to get this? I mean, they're really, this should be part of the life skills that they're learning in school, and somebody should be teaching this in the high schools and colleges, you know, especially the high schools for people who don't go to college. I mean, they really need to be getting this kind of education. And, I, frankly, I don't think that they're getting that kind of education. I mean, where would it be? I don't remember me ever getting it. Do you remember, Chris?
0: Yeah, we had. Um, I remember having classes on basic things, such as how to write a check, um, and it, it's interesting that many consumers don't know how to um, do things like that, but increasingly it might not be as important. Um, we seem to be moving to a financial regulatory system with more consumer protection than contract. Um, and as people moved from checks to um, uh, uh, credit cards and ATM cards, um, I think there's a different landscape of risks and. Pr- Perhaps consumers won't need to know as much um, if uh, if the various regulations in those in the credit card and ATM uh, fields are sufficiently protected. Protective,
1: you know. But Chris, most people don't know that. For example, writing a check and letting to anybody who you know who they do business with can be dangerous because. The check number and the account number can be replicated on checks that they buy at Office Depot and siphon the money out of your account, and you don't have very much uh, protection, really and truly, when that happens. I mean, yeah, they'll they'll replace your money maybe right away if you tell them right away, but if you don't tell them right away, you lose money. And then even if they do give you back your money, they can siphon it out. I mean, I'm helping two people right now that this is what happened to them. Somebody replicated their checks, and Now, the burden is on the consumer to try and prove that you're innocent. And, you know, debit cards, people don't recognize that debit cards don't have the same protection as the credit cards. So, you know, at least from who I hear from is the victims, I don't think that I do think that they do know that they do need to know, hey, using a check is dangerous. And they do need to know all of the pitfalls of using a debit card before they make that choice to use one. So, you know, I I would love to see us have those consumer protections. I just don't think that they're there yet.
0: You know, this, of course, is a live issue in Congress. Right. And we'll see what protections emerge. Um, But I think we're going to see a swing towards more and more ATM or debit card purchases um, because uh, Congress has proposed uh, 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 basically placing cost controls on uh, interchange for ATM fees. And that's going to give a lot of retailers incentives to push consumers towards the use of their debit card. Um, and whether or not consumers understand the implication that you have a lower level of protection with that piece of plastic than with a very similar-looking piece of plastic that is a credit card um, remains to be seen.
1: Right, right. And, you know, I, I, when I ask even lawyers if I'm doing a presentation, I, I ask them, are you protected using your debit card just as you are with your credit card, and most of them think that they are. They don't realize. They think because that Visa MasterCard logo is on there that they have the same protections. And then they forget that the money, you know, as soon as you use your debit card, it's like an electronic check, and the money is siphoned out, whereas when you have your credit card, you have a whole 30 days to, you know, 60 days to complain that, hey, there's fraud on there. Yeah, anyway, I...
0: period is yeah. really important, and... What's also going to be interesting is, as consumers adopt mobile payments, uh, what the rules for consumer protection and where the risk of loss, loss will lie when you actually start using your telephone to buy things. Right. Um, we're having a conference on this issue at the University of Washington in October um, specifically to map out um, how mobile payments are working. And based on their structure, what type of consumer protections exist for the person who is using them.
1: Right. That's that'll be interesting. And and so what what kind of consumer protections are there really with and you're talking about not uh just what kind of payments you're not just talking about when you call up and you make a payment by phone you're talking about actually just doing the payment by phone instead of the internet. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, things are going to get really exciting. I think there are going to be Uh, Generations of young people very soon who never use a check and frequently use their wireless phone to purchase goods both online and in person. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Then the question is, um, as with all payments, you want to think about risk and who bears the risk of loss. Um, And the answer is is that it depends on the product. Um, It depends on whether the bill goes through your telephone to your credit card company or to your bank, or to your telephone company. And there are different standards in each context, um, and so there will be profound consumer implications for the uh, infrastructure of these payment products. And this is one of the issues we want to we want to look at carefully and figure out if we can uh, bring some rationality to it.
1: So, are we talking about the? Whether it would be under the Electronic Funds Transfer Act or the Fair Credit Billing Act, you know, Truth in Lending Act. What what are we compare? Or would there be another whole? I think it would fit into one of those two, right?
0: It it again. It depends on how the mobile payment system is structured. Hmm. Um, Some would go under the same rules as credit cards, others as ATM cards. But then the question that I'm trying, I'm still unclear about, is what happens when it's not routed to a credit card or ATM card, but instead goes onto your phone bill? Ah, and what, yeah. do you, uh, what kind of bargaining power do you have with your phone company?
1: Exactly. And uh,
0: what incentives are there um, to uh, you know, keep the customer happy and deal with the customer fairly? Um, in, at least in the credit card world, uh, there is a fair amount of competition, and if you feel as though a company has treated you unfairly, you can switch. It's much harder in the telephone area where, let's say, if you want an iPhone, you're, you're basically out of luck. It's AT&T or the highway. Right. Um, or you're stuck in a two-year contract. Uh, do you think you can really just kind of cancel because you disagree with a charge? Um, these are all the types of issues that we're, we're trying to think, think through, and there's just a tremendous opportunity here um, uh, for new companies that want to create new payment models that are more competitive than credit cards. So we might see, um, uh, we might see new companies move into this space and have better policies than, than even what's uh, um, given to people under Reg E and Z.
1: Yeah. You know, I like the fact that at least if we have a credit card dispute we we know what to do. Do you know what I mean? We know we immediately dispute it with, within the sixty days. We know that if it's fraudulent, for example, we're never going to have to pay. We're not even going to be responsible for the first fifty dollars, which, that you know, that's being waived by all the credit card companies. So I mean, that's a safe right now. That's a safe way to do business is on your credit card, so that you know that if there's a problem, you pretty much are going to be protected. Whereas with the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, you have less protections. And I'm thinking if if I had to rely on my phone bill when I can never even get a hold of someone and I'm writing emails and there's challenges, I mean, they're the last people that I would want to have to deal with um, with regard to uh, an error in my bill. There, It's just not easy to even understand those billing statements, let alone, oh, my God, now you're scaring the heck out of me, Chris.
0: Well, you know, there's great opportunities here to make better systems, too. Yes. Um, because the phone is inherently a two-way communications device, you could be told what your current balance is. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the basic problems in credit cards we have today um, is overspending. Um, and they never kind of tell you that you've spent too much. Um, and in the mobile space, you might be able to have tools that tell you things, like how much you've spent this month. Right. And it might help you... Um, uh, be more careful um, when spending money,
1: yeah, yeah, there are alerts you can set up with your credit card company that will tell you after if you have um, if you go over a certain amount, I mean you can set up alerts for when you pay your bill. There are numerous alerts you can set up that you can go online and and create with American Express. I know i I set up certain things, so I mean that that's helpful. Maybe we should have more of those alerts with the credit card companies. I know if I wanted to, I could have them alert me by phone. I just don't want to be alerted by phone because I'm always on the Internet. But, but those are good points that, that are really important that should be addressed by uh, credit card companies and your banks to give you alerts so you don't have that. And what would it cost? I mean, it's electronic, right? I mean, they could do automatic alerts. It doesn't seem like it would be very tough.
0: The other, yeah, the other kind of cost issue here that's really enticing is that some mobile payment providers um, have very low fees, uh, fees that are um, uh, many times lower than what uh, American Express would charge for a given transaction.
1: Hmm. Um,
0: so there are all sorts of neat opportunities. And on the other hand, there are risks for um, uh, privacy problems. Right. A lot of the new payment uh, models, give the payment company information about what you are buying specifically. Right. Um, so this is kind of an interesting issue in credit cards. Is that Most of the time, the credit card does, company doesn't know what you've actually bought at a store. They simply know that you've spent $100 um, at the Walgreens, for instance. Um, moving into some of these new electronic forms of payment, Um, the payment provider will actually get a line-item list of what you've bought. So there are going to be new um, um, privacy problems with that. Um, And our current regulatory model uh, does a pretty poor job of dealing with them.
1: Right. You know, getting back to that whole tailored advertising or target advertising, How, going back to your study here, how did the the young people feel about tailored advertising that tracks – What websites did they go to? You know, how how did they compare with adults about this target marketing and and tailored advertising?
0: Tailored advertising was one of the most interesting issues that we looked at. In fact, we made our first uh, report based on this issue, because advertisers repeatedly said that, you know, consumers want tailored advertising. But what we found generally is that um, most Americans said that they did not want tailored advertising to begin with. But then when we followed up the basic question, um, um, adding information about how the tailoring occurs, the rejection rates really started going up. Um, So when we told people that tailored ads would be um, um, based on what you do on the website you are visiting, so um, uh, basically first party contextual advertising, the rejection rate goes up to 73%. Mm. Um, when, we ask that the, when we point out that the tailoring will be based upon other websites you've visited, which is basically the, the double-click model where, where you're followed across many different websites for targeting of advertising, rejection rate goes up to 84% um, percent, um, overall. And when we say um, we're also going to combine data from offline sources, is something that Axiom wants to do. They want to take data from your zip code and um, other offline purchase information and demographic information. Um, rejection rates go up to 86%.
1: Yeah, total profiling. <laughs> yeah, it, it, so there's really
0: high rejection rates. Um, and when you, um, when you look, when you segment those questions for age, you still see really high uh, rejection. Um, uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, um, um, 67% object when there's first party. Uh, that is, the website you are visiting is tailoring ads. That number goes up to 86%. Um, when you start talking about other websites, so behavioral advertising basically has an 86% rejection rate, even among the young, and it goes up to 90% when you, when you ask them uh, what do you think about combining information from the offline world. And,
1: what's you know, that's of, almost educational, Chris, because most of them don't even realize that these companies are sharing this information to that extent or, or selling this information. So I think as soon as you they start to get it, they start to understand what you're asking them, then all of a sudden they go, oh, my gosh, you're right. <laughs> we do reject this.
0: And, the, and what's interesting about it is that younger people, on average, objected more than the rest of the population um, to the latter two um, uh, factual presentations. Interesting. So, so, you know, what we're kind of driving at here is that, yeah, there are situations where young people are are putting more and more personal information online, but their attitudes have largely remained consistent with older Americans. They want protections for this data, um, and they want privacy from a lot of the Uh, practices that are ubiquitous online.
1: And today we are so thrilled that we're talking with our our good friend, Chris Hufnigel. And Chris has uh, just done wonderful work in the privacy area, and I just wanted to make sure besides doing the great work at the uh, Samuelson Law Technology and Public Policy Clinic and being a senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, he also has a great blog, and you can go to Chris. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-O-F-N-A-G-L-E dot com. And you can see his great blog and see what he's talking about and learn more about him. And, of course, you can also go to epic.org and see the great work that he did when he was there, but he's still friends with the people, and they're doing great work. And also you can go to law.berkeley.edu slash Samuelson Clinic and see more of the work that they're doing, and Chris is wonderful. And we're talking about this very interesting study that uh, I have right in front of me that I read, and it's called How Different Are Young Adults from Older Adults When It Comes to Information Privacy, Attitudes, and Policies? And I should mention that you're listening to KUCI, 88.9 FM and Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. You're listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm the host, Mari Frank. And I am thrilled to be talking to Chris. So, Chris, um, you also asked respondents about whether companies or individuals should incur penalties for uh, illegal for privacy breaches. Uh, what about the responses in that end?
0: Well, this is an area uh, where we found uh, where there were really interesting findings. And younger people were more lenient than older individuals. Um, so, when we asked. Americans generally. We asked a thousand Americans if a company purchases or uses someone's personal information illegally. About how much, if anything, do you think the company should be fined? And the options ranged from one hundred dollars to more than twenty-five hundred dollars. Um, and there was also also an option for it depends. And in fact, that's what I think the answer is. It depends. Right. Um, however, um, when we looked at uh, the uh, the general population, uh, 69% said more than $2,500. They chose the largest option uh, we provided. And the options we provided are actually based on existing privacy laws. Um, $2,500 is the, is the standard fine for violating the Drivers' Privacy Protection Act. Um, so we weren't pulling these numbers out of the air. We were trying to key people's outrage and objection to existing statutes and which ones are we're basically asking which ones are strong enough, which ones punish enough, um, and 69% chose this, you know, the strongest punishment possible. Um, what's interesting is that the 18 to 24-year-olds, the younger people, were less likely to choose that option. Only 54% chose more than $2,500, and we found that they were, they were more uh, likely to choose $1,000 hmm. as... Uh, the penalty uh, than other groups. Um, so there was a there was an interesting difference there. The, the other area where, in talking about uh, penal um, uh, punishments for uh, privacy violations, we also asked the group beyond a fine, uh, companies that use a, a person's information illegally might be punished in other ways. Which way of the which one of the following ways to punish companies do you think is most important? Um, so we said the company could be put out of business, uh, the company should fund efforts to help people protect privacy, um, and executives who are responsible should face jail time. Uh, what's interesting is that 40% of um, uh, the youngest uh, uh, people in our survey uh, chose executives should face jail time. So there is a um, very kind of high level of outrage in the United States, about privacy violations
1: yeah even even the sixty five and older said forty percent of them said that they should be jailed. I guess they're thinking of Enron and <laughs> you know what I mean they're thinking of some of the things that they maybe have witnessed on TV recently where when uh, corporate people do bad, that they have actually done jail time i mean that just I found this to be interesting in your study, very interesting
0: yeah it, it you know, Americans. It's it's interesting. Americans tend to not like a lot of regulation, but when rules are broken, they tend to be very punitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those areas where um, Americans have really expressed a lot of outrage. Other surveys have found similar results. Um, going back uh, to 2000, Business Week asked Americans um, how companies should be uh, punished for privacy violations, and a very high number. Of Americans in that city too said we should think about jail time for these types of violations. It's kind of an um, gives you an idea of the zeitgeist, the kind of frustration that people have around information privacy issues.
1: But but uh, what I found was interesting when you asked them how many of them actually read privacy policies on websites. It was uh, like thirty two percent of the. Uh, Let's see. What was it? Thirty-one percent of the eighteen to twenty-four said hardly ever, and the same. And twenty-seven percent of the sixty-five and older said hardly ever. And even the highest, which which was um, what the highest number that read was maybe. Well, they, they maybe the young people were the highest level, <laughs> but it, it just kind of amazed me that they're they say they're worried about that they don't bother to read them, and and I think part of it is is that the privacy policy doesn't come up right away and they also think it's going to take too much time to read it and half the time they don't, don't even understand it. I, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that, Chris?
0: I think it's rational to not read privacy policies um, because they take so long to read. Um, there's a very interesting study by Lori Craner and Alicia McDonald from Carnegie Mellon where they added up all the time it would take to actually read the privacy policies on a website the average american visits and the answer is thousands of hours and it would reflect um of huge costs if you know if you were just paid minimum wage um, uh, how much you, would you be willing to pay or be paid to do this um, the uh, you're talking about thousands of dollars in cost to individuals to read these policies so even if you do sit down and spend the time to read the policy, it might not answer the questions that are relevant to you. Um, we've shown in previous uh, work, we've shown that uh, privacy policies are often just vague. Uh, they often don't answer relevant questions. And frequently, they're contradictory. Um, so you know one, one uh, piece of language I, I frequently see in privacy policies. Uh, you'll see a sentence that says, we don't share information with third parties. But then if you scroll down a couple paragraphs, it will say, we may from time to time share information about you with trusted partners. <laughs> right. Th- that, uh, that is contradictory, and it makes no sense, and people uh, with or without a legal education can't make sense of it. Um, so it's just a waste of your time.
1: Yes, you know I remember, and I don't know if this is still going on to have um have privacy policies that really have like very simple statements on them and and that you could just go down bullet points that would be very, very easy to read, and we don't have enough of those. we just don't have enough of those, so i mean i don't I don't like to read them either. I'm sure you don't either, but if they're long and lengthy now, what I'm really gonna do business with someone or I'm analyzing to give them feedback, boy then I could tell them, like what you're telling them, these are so inconsistent, and who can understand what this means? So you're right. It makes no sense, and and I think that in itself tells us that the privacy policies really need to be tightened up, made easy to understand, and very short bullet points, and if you want to learn more, then maybe you can go to the next level and, you know, investigate more.
0: One of the um, aspects of the previous report coming from the same data um, was understanding of privacy policies. We found we asked people true or false. If a privacy policy has excuse me, if a website has a privacy policy, can that website sell personal information to third parties? And we found that most people got that question wrong. They said, um, they said that websites couldn't sell information if the website has a privacy policy. and this is following this is about the fifth study that has found the same thing Um, and my collaborators and I basically came to the conclusion that consumers see privacy policies as a seal I I don't think they're actually reading them I think they're scrolling down the page and they're looking to see if there's a privacy policy there and if it's there they conclude that there are protections in place whether or not there really are
1: it's kind of like the HIPAA disclosures. You know, it's really, privacy policy is really a disclosure policy, right? It's not really necessarily a privacy policy depending on what the people put in it. So, you know, it, I think just by virtue of the word privacy policy, they're assuming that there's privacy protection. So that makes a lot of sense to me, Chris. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it does.
0: So what one of the policy recommendations from that is that maybe companies that share information with third parties shouldn't be allowed to call it a privacy policy. Right. Maybe what you do is you call it information-sharing policy or terms of information use.
1: Right. But those
0: magic words, privacy policy, cause a lot of consumers to falsely believe that they have all sorts of rights um, that they don't.
1: Well isn't that the, the same thing when you go to the doctor? I mean, I see people just signing everything, they're signing everything away when they go to the doctor. And I read those things and I write on them and I do all sorts of things. I can't write too much or I won't get treated. But it's it's basically the same thing with the HIPAA disclosure laws. It's it's called a privacy policy, but it's the same thing. It really there is a, you know, disconnect between the words privacy policy, which sounds affirmative to like what you're saying. Uh, whether it be information sharing policy or whatever. Uh, but I think you're right. That makes a lot of sense. We're, we're in the real Wild West. But, but on, a whole, on the whole, from this study, is basically you found that the young people and the older adults uh, basically felt about the same, pretty much, about information privacy.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, there are, there are uh, findings in here about people's normative beliefs that are kind of surprising. I mean, we asked people, generally speaking, wh- anyone who uploads a photo or video of me to the Internet where I'm clearly recognizable should first get my permission. Eighty-four percent of young adults strongly agreed or agreed with that statement. Yeah. Um, You know, that's not the law in the U.S. Right, right. Other people's permission before you upload photographs of them, even when they're clearly identifiable. Um, And, you know, we saw very strong uh, feelings about that among young people. Um, You can't kind of say that young people don't care about privacy when they agree with statements like that.
1: Right. It, It goes back to how informed they are, how knowledgeable they are about their rights. With regard to privacy, it's it's like my daughter. We were just talking about this. And it's funny, Chris, because she she now after she's been reading your studies, uh, she said, you know, I I should write something on Facebook, you know, because I'm on Facebook and I'm seeing all these things that are happening. And I talk about this with my friends and they just don't get it, mom. They're just not and they're just not knowledgeable. And I said, that's the difference. You're becoming very knowledgeable. You're doing the research. You're understanding what's happening. And people think that when they go on Facebook that they are protected. They think that if they put up some of their privacy barriers that no one else is going to see it except their good buddies. And that just isn't the case. So I think it's a matter of educating people to understand what they're doing and maybe getting companies to have Default the, the privacy protections as a default and and then having opt in but do you think we're ever going to get there chris
0: uh, I think Facebook is in a lot of trouble right now um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the company is likely to announce changes to its approach um, because it is under a lot of regulatory scrutiny, but one thing that people can do today uh, and I just learned about this someone just wrote to me and said that you know there's a face there's a uh, there's a little tool under the privacy settings in Facebook um, called Preview Profile. And it lets you look at your profile from the perspective of someone else. So uh, you can say, what do my friends see? What do my friends of friends see? And what does everyone see? Mm. And that, gives you, um, that can give you a picture onto what you're sharing. Uh, because I do think that the level of uh, the, the number of choices that Facebook presents people with Makes it very hard to choose wisely, uh, and, and unless you use a, pre, a preview uh, tool like this, you don't really know what you're sharing with other people.
1: And I think it's also a little confusing as how to block out those things. You know how to um, use the privacy tools. At least you know that's what I hear from from my daughter. But we're speaking with Chris Hoofnigel, who is an attorney. He is. A researcher, he is in with the, um, the Berkeley. Uh, I don't know. The Berkeley <laughs> Center for Law and Economics. Yeah, Technology. I yeah. know, I know, I know, I know, I know, and he's doing great work. And you can find out his blog at chrishoefnigle.com, and of course you can go to his website for the university and learn more about the the research they're doing at lawberkeleyedu Clinic. He is a senior staff attorney to the Samuelson Law Technology and Policy Clinic and a senior fellow with the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. You know, Chris, you did another interesting um, study called, in, actually it was a white paper called Internalizing Identity Theft, and you know this is one of the things close to my heart. Let's talk a little bit about that, and uh, what were your objectives in this paper that you wrote?
0: Well, a lot of it came from you, Mari. Uh, <laughs> You had done. Uh, you had shown me a number of cases where there were v- there was very sloppy authentication in a number of contexts, which basically means that credit granters um, uh, approved accounts despite there being indications of fraud. And I remember you even sharing one of your cases where um, um, signatures on checks were completely wrong, but yes. they were um, but they were approved by the bank nonetheless. And so this gave me the idea that to look at identity theft through the lens of, of business incentives. You know, what are the incentives that businesses have that cause them to approve credit um, to, to imposters? Uh, so th- what this study does is we went out and we actually got the applications and the other business records associated uh, with identity theft victims. Um, so we went to identity theft victims, we recruited them. Um, if, let's say, the victim, let's say uh, a new credit card was opened in the name of the victim at Bank X. We went to Bank X, and using a federal law, the the, uh, FACTA, um, we got the application and other materials, and then we gave it back to the victim, and we asked the victim to look at uh, uh, the materials and point out whether there were errors on them.
1: Yes. And I I told you about one where we finally were able to get the uh, original application and we could see that, yes, the Social Security number was correct and the name of my victim was correct. But the mother's maiden name was wrong, you know, (laughs) so... In other words, the person was able to get the social and to get, you know, and make up an address, but get the social and get the name and, of course, put in a false phone number. But the key to show that it really wasn't this person very easily was that the mother's maiden name was wrong, but the address was wrong. The phone number was wrong. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that a victim can, when they are able to get that information, which you know is not easy, When they're able to get that information, they can show that there is very little authentication. So what did it reveal about the business authentication practices?
0: What we found was very similar to what you had with your client. Um, In case after case, every single application for a financial product had some significant indicia of fraud, Um, yet credit was granted anyway. Um, so we found false data bursts false addresses was the most common error uh, uh, was simply addresses that never belonged to the victim. Right. Um, we found false phone numbers, all sorts of um, information that actually is quite easy to authenticate. Um, uh, authenticating an address is about the cheapest piece of information that one can check through electronic databases. Um, so,
1: uh and not only that when they get the credit report when when a creditor is about to issue credit or a loan, they obviously are going to get your credit report and if the credit report has a different address, that should be the he, biggest red flag right there, you know? And the and the date of birth is wrong and and what if the social is one number off?
0: We generally found that the socials were right. Um But uh, wrong addresses was a big problem. And you mentioned red flags. Uh, We had one victim who who experienced multiple mortgage loan fraud. So the imposter bought six homes using the identity of the victim. Um, And in many of those applications, all three of the consumer reporting agencies said there are red flags present, the addresses don't match, the date of birth don't match, investigate further. And in all those cases, this imposter walked away with mortgage loans.
1: And so what's happening is when the creditor gets this credit report back that shows the red flags, that indicates the address is not the same, which is what the credit bureaus did right, the creditors themselves just ignored it.
0: Well, it's hard to say exactly what they did. They could have done more investigation um, we don 't know for sure we do know that there are always options for getting in touch with the actual victim. The credit reports themselves had accurate address and phone number information, so um, you know one basic remedy would be to call the phone number on the credit report um, to and speak with the person who answers. Um, but what my paper is about is basically the idea that it's cheaper for banks to ignore fraud and just to write it off than to do investigations to prevent this type of identity
1: theft. Right. Now, what do you think, now that the economy is is changing, and you did this study last year, right? Was it done mostly yes. from 2009? And we're seeing that a lot of my good clients who are you know wealthy clients, they're even finding that... Um, their, their companies, their credit card companies are lowering the credit line. Um, I have people who didn't have great credit, so a lot of the companies are actually closing their accounts. Even if they paid the minimum payments, they're, they're closing their credit card accounts. And we're finding that credit is not issued like candy like it was in the past. Do you think that that's going to have some uh, impact on this?
0: I, I think it's going to have some impact. Uh, you know, when I first When I was writing a study um, study and I first got the results, I was a little shocked at how bad some of these applications were. We had an application where the um, imposter misspelled the victim's last name two different ways. Yep, yep. Um, We're kind of trying to figure out how could that happen. But this was a period of time. uh, The study covered a period of time where the financial services industry was issuing ninja loans these were the you know, no income, no job, no assets, loans. Right,
1: right, right. And,
0: you know, in that atmosphere anybody could get credit. It's really no surprise that imposters had a pretty easy time uh getting cards and other people's names. The I think the economy has two effects. Uh um one is there is certainly a tightening in credit card granting standards. It's part, partly reflected from the red flags rule. Um uh, on, on one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have a lot of people who are really desperate. And the motivation for people to engage in identity fraud I think is much higher today than it was three years ago. Um, as a result, the, the the Federal Trade Commission has actually seen an upswing in complaints of identity theft.
1: Now, has that upswing been, and this is what my experience is, at least from Who's Calling Me, the upswing has been in other than credit card, it's been in bank fraud like ATM, debit card fraud, which is easy. It's been in medical identity theft, not only using someone's identity for, you know, getting new boobs or, or whatever they're doing, you know, or getting health care. Um, but also it makes it, it becomes a, um, a financial loan as, as well as causing medical problems for these people and i and insurance problems. So I think what we're seeing, I think you're right, people are getting more desperate, and I think it's more they're going beyond the credit card fraud and doing a lot more bank fraud and check fraud. That's my experience, at least what I'm hearing from victims. I don't, I don't know if that's what the FTC is saying.
0: The, the, so I don't have the FTC numbers on that. However, there are um, indications that check kiting in particular um, is up big time. Um, so you know, it's a very basic form of, of check fraud. Um, that has rapidly increased in incidents
1: yeah now let's talk a little bit about the red flag rules it took forever to even get everybody to agree what the red flag rules would be so uh, let's explain to my audience about the red flag rules and if you think that there is going to be enforcement of the or if there's enforcement what, what impact it will make
0: sure um you know, the red flag rules require banks, uh, oh, well, credit grantors more, more generally, to exercise reasonable procedures when there is some indicia of fraud um, in, in a customer relationship or a new customer relationship. The kind of issue that I, I mean, there's a number of issues with them. One is that um, consumers now have the ability to put a phone number on file at the consumer reporting agency and ask credit grantors to call that number. Um, if, uh, if, if an application for new credit um, appears, the, the problem is, is that credit grantors don't have to follow that procedure. Right. They're allowed to use any reasonable procedure to verify someone's identity. Um,
1: and uh, most of them are doing the, the, the one that they get the lists, you know, the electronic lists, and the, um, you know, they're, they're not actually making the phone call because it takes too much time and too much effort. So they're just looking at lists,
0: and, and therein lies the problem. It, if you know, if they can use reasonable methods, they can decide. The banks themselves can decide um, what is reasonable, and uh, it puts a, you know, it puts uh, consumers in a situation where you can't say, "Don't extend credit without calling me first. and um, you know, you could even set a password, um, which would be a pretty effective barrier to new account fraud. Um, but banks can just ignore that. Um, they can use um, databases instead to try to verify your identity. And it's basically up to them to decide what is reasonable when they do that.
1: Right. And, and these sloppy measures, unfortunately, with like you were talking about with, with the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, for example, if someone issues a credit card to a fraudster after you have a fraud alert that says, don't issue credit without calling me first. If they do that, under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you don't have a private right of action. So there's a a lot of the important provisions in the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act really took away a private right of action, so there's really no enforcement of these that would protect victims. I think that's that's a huge issue, even with the red flag rules. I mean, there are great rules saying, hey, if you see a discrepancy in a phone number or a birth date or you see something that looks fishy, find out about it. But like you said, Chris, they're saying, take a reasonable procedure. Unless, in, in, how, do you, how do you have a private right of action and, uh, I mean, you don't have a private right of action to even determine what's reasonable under the circumstances. So that's a real problem.
0: I'm I think the the real problem is that the, these rules had to be created in the first place. Yeah. The, the fact that there was such a record of, um, of granting that occurred with little due diligence, um, that it required this rule is an indication of what the problem really is, and, and that's what my my paper is actually about yes. the idea that we have to change economic incentives to prevent identity theft um, because as it is now, it's more lucrative to grant as much credit as you can and deal with the fraud later than to put some brakes on the process um, yep. uh, on the front end and try to avoid creating identity theft victims.
1: Well, that's a great way to end. Chris, we are out of time. You are wonderful as usual. We always look forward to your studies and your white papers because you are the best. So thank you for joining us, and we'll have you back again.
0: Thanks. You're very kind.
1: Okay, talk to you again, Chris. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Look at our upcoming guests and write us emails. And have a great day. Stay private.